If you will, turn in your Bibles to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we continue our study through the Word. Now you'll remember that Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem for the Passover. It will be the Passover in which he is crucified. And, and so his days are running short. The crowds were large. And you remember amidst all of this that he was invited to a dinner on the Sabbath to be with one of the Pharisees, a leading Pharisee. And you will remember that as he was there at the dinner that there was an individual that was ill, that had dropsy and and you'll remember that Jesus looks upon him and he has compassion upon him. And he asks the leaders, is it lawful for me to do a kindness to heal this man here on the Sabbath? And there was just a silence. And you remember that Jesus healed him and touched him. And, and then afterwards, he, he pointed out the hypocrisy of their interpretation of the law and how it was that that everyone would take care of their animals if they were injured or hurt, but their interpretation of the law excluded that for people. And he was showing them that they were placing animals uh, above people. And so he goes on to minister to their hearts, to these religious leaders and, and people who were pursuing the outward keeping of the law, the Pharisees. And, and he says, you know, the problem is that you have become very much desirous of the praise of men. Whereas they had started uh, in order to please God, the keeping of the law. But people started to give them recognition for how well they were doing at keeping the law. And, and pretty soon it became a show. It became a, a contest. And pretty soon now their hearts were so puffed up. They were so godly that they were seeking recognition for that everywhere they went. They expected the best seats at the feast. They expected everybody to part the ways when they came in. They were seeking to be seen in the marketplace. And, and Jesus says, you are using God to exalt yourself. You're using God to exalt yourself. He says, humble yourself. Let God exalt you. But if you exalt yourself, then God is going to humble you. And so, and so he shares and ministers to the, to the hearts of the Pharisees. He says that God is the one, if you will humble yourself, that he is the one that will bless you. And, and you remember that there was one at the feast that said, yes, blessed is everyone who eats bread and supper, the banquet of God. And Jesus goes on to talk about that. And the warning that he gives in the parable is not everybody that thinks they're going to be at that banquet is going to be at that banquet. And certainly those self-righteous, uh, they immediately expected that they were going to be the honored guests. They expected the best seats at the banquet that God was going to throw. But Jesus said a, a master threw a banquet. He sent the the invitations out and then when everything was ready he sent the servants to now say come the time is 
is at hand. But one by one, they began to give excuses as to why they couldn't come. Jesus had come to offer the kingdom of God and to enter in. And one by one, the religious leaders and Pharisees began to make excuses of why they would not enter into the, the kingdom. And so the master said, then go and, and invite the maimed and the broken and the poor and that my banquet will be full. And, and so the gospel went to the publicans and to the sinners and to the outcasts and to the harlots. And, and what happened? They were receiving that message and, and that invitation and they were entering into the kingdom of God. And, and yet still the report came back to the master. There's still room at the table. So as it go into the highways and the byways and, and you send that invitation out to everyone, that was the invitation to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles, the church, would uh, enter into that kingdom. And, and so we see that it was a, a warning against uh, their hearts. And, and Jesus talked about entering into that banquet, entering into that relationship with the Lord how it needs to be the most important relationship that there is in a person's life. That it is not just a casual acquaintance with Christ. Christ didn't casually rescue us. Christ went all in to rescue us and, and he invites us into an all-in relationship with him. That, that it's not a dating relationship, but it is a, a covenant relationship where he is our God and we are now citizens in the kingdom. And that there is no relationship that can go above that. That that is the supreme relationship that is to be in our life. It is, in fact, the fulfillment of the greatest law, which is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That, that there is to be nothing that gets in between your relationship with God. That anything that gets in between your relationship and God is considered to be idolatry. And even good things can become idols if they get in between you and God. The love of family, the love of others, a good thing, but not if it gets in between your relationship between you and God. And so Jesus continues to ministry. He says that you have to weigh the cost of that relationship. You're being invited into the kingdom, but you're invited into a relationship with the Savior. And weigh that decision. It's a weighty decision. It is a connection of your soul to God. And it's not a connection to be taken lightly. Just as when a person decides to get married, they don't casually enter into marriage. It is a serious covenant that you enter into, and it is to be weighed carefully when you are going to be wed to somebody. In the same way, Jesus said, take note, weigh it, measure it, be resolute and determined in it in the same way that a person who is going to construct a tower doesn't just go start and build, that they consider what is it going to cost, the materials and time, and do we have sufficient resources to be able to accomplish this? It's a, it's a weighty matter to enter into a building project. Is, is there a sufficiency to complete it? He said, or in the same way that a king, when an army is coming against him, he assesses the situation. It's a weighty thing when an army is coming against you to destroy you. 
and for you to determine whether or not you have got the resources to meet that resistance uh, or send a delegation of peace to determine the terms. And so Jesus, again, as he is closing in on Jerusalem, he is looking at the cross and his commitment to that cross is 100%. And so he is committed to us. And he is inviting us uh, into a commitment to, to him. As we get to this 15th chapter, we are going to see three extraordinary parables. And all three of the parables are going to reflect a single principle. And that single principle is the reflection of God's heart and how much God loves you. In the Jew's mind, in the Jew's thinking, the righteous had nothing to do with the unrighteous. This was one of the chief complaints that they had against Jesus, is why would a righteous person be in the presence of the unrighteous? And this, they felt, was true also about God, that God wanted nothing to do with the unrighteous, and he only wants anything to do with the righteous, and that God sits on his throne as the omnipotent uh, over the entire creation, and if you are a righteous person, and if you approach God the right way, then God will receive you. And so that was their picture of God. An unrighteous person... God wants nothing to do with them whatsoever. And so they were the righteous. They were making the approach through the law to God. And so certainly they were the ones that were going to sit down at that feast. But they had the wrong construction of God and of God's heart. And God does not sit on his throne with his arms crossed waiting for righteous people to make an approach to him. He is an active, loving God that is pursuing every single one of his creation. That he loves us beyond our capacity to even understand that. And he is chasing down an intimate relationship with every single person. Today, God is chasing down an intimate relationship with you. And no matter how intimate you are, whether you're estranged and don't even know him, or whether you're connected to him and growing, God wants you to draw nearer to him and he is continuing to pursue your heart, your mind, and your soul to draw you nearer to himself. He is an active, loving, initiating God that is seeking after every single soul, that God's heart is this, that he wills that none should perish. He is not passively sitting back and waiting for people to clean up their acts so that they can come. But instead, he is the God that pursues. He is the God that loves. He is the God that created and now has lost his creation to sin and is busy going and regathering and restoring what was lost. And so Jesus came to teach us about the heart of the Father, the heart of the God that loves you, and the heart of the God that made you, and the heart of the God that desires intimate connection with you. Let's see how Jesus revealed the Father's heart through these parables as recorded here in this 15th chapter, the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 1. And then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Look at that. The Pharisees and the religious leaders, they don't want to hear Jesus, but 
those that are broken, the tax collectors and the sinners, they drew near to Jesus. He, he invited them to come and to listen to what he had to say, to reason with them. And sinners today are drawn by the love of Jesus to listen to the truth that he has to say. In verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes complained. Literally, they murmured or grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It was unthinkable to the religious leaders that Jesus would gather himself around the unrighteous. They wanted nothing to do with the unrighteous. They wanted to keep as far away from the unrighteous as they possibly could. They wanted to be exclusive and separated. And yet we see that our God is a hands-on God that seeks after the unrighteous. And, and so, verse 3, so he spoke this parable to them saying, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? He uses a common illustration of their day to reveal the, just the simple heart of a shepherd. A shepherd has a hundred sheep and goes out in the morning with them, comes back as they go into the fold, he counts them back in and there's only 99. What shepherd goes, well, Kept most of them. <laughs> Pretty good. 99 out of 100. No one's perfect. What's for dinner? <laughs> no, nobody does that. No shepherd does that. Uh, he secures the 99 and immediately he goes out looking for that one sheep that is lost. And it says uh, here in, in verse 5, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing and and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And so here we see a couple of things. Number one, when he finds that, that sheep that was lost, notice that it says that he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. He scoops them up, puts them on his shoulders rejoicing. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say to the sheep, you bad sheep, you straight away, I'm missing my dinner. Look, at you inconvenience me. I'll get over here. I'll get back. And don't you ever go astray again. <laughs> he doesn't rebuke. He's not angry. He's not mad. What does he do? He scoops him up, puts him on his shoulders, rejoices. Woohoo! Awesome. Let's go get you back to the other 99. And when he gets back to the others, he says, everybody, come rejoice. The, the sheep that was lost, the lamb that was lost, found him, it's okay. He's back in the fold again. Let's celebrate the glory of that. You see, we are those sheep that have gone astray. See, God created each and every one of us. And then sin separated us from God. And so we have been distanced. And now... The Savior, the Good Shepherd, is there to go and to gather back together again God's own people and to reconnect them back to God. It is a, a rescue mission of the Lord to seek and to save the, the lost, those who are separated. And, and it is a great joy. We see rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And so we are those sheep that, uh, that get lost. And, 
and how easily we get lost and, and go astray. Verse 7, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Our soul is important to God. God isn't willing that any should perish or that would be lost. And the angels as well as God rejoice when, when one is brought back into the fold. And so there is great joy in heaven. Think about that. There is great joy in heaven when heaven watches the redemption of man. That which was lost, mankind, is being restored back to the Father. In verse 8 it says, Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And so we see here that a woman has lost a coin, and, and now she begins to search throughout her house. Anybody ever lost anything in your house? Ever tried to find your keys? Anything ever been misplaced? Or uh, uh, Here we see how carefully she is searching. Notice that it says that she lights a lamp. She gets the lights on. Uh, she sweeps the house, and then she searches carefully. She is diligently searching. I think of those times, you know, where, where we have something that is valuable. You see, she has something that's valuable. And, and now she is searching for it. And I wonder if she didn't say to herself, I'm going to put this in a really safe place. Uh, you ever put something in a really safe place? It's in such a safe place you can't remember where you put that thing in that super safe place. Well, I want you to know it's still safe <laughs> wherever it is because <laughs> it's super safe. <laughs> well, she's trying to find her super safe coin uh, that now she cannot uh, find here. And notice what it says, that she searches uh, here diligently now. It says, until she finds it. Notice that. That's key. Not, well, I gave it a good effort and I can't find it. There is a mission to be successful that she is not going to stop searching until she finds it. That's the heart of God that's searching for you that was not willing to stop until you were rescued and continues to search after and to seek every single person that is lost even to this day. And from the moment that you were born until the last breath that you take, God is seeking after and searching after and desiring a relationship with you that will spare you from eternal separation from him and bring you into eternal connection with him. And the lights are on, and she is sweeping and cleaning, and she is frantically looking, and she will not give up until she has found it. In verse 9, And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And, and so God naturally wants to recover his things that are lost, and we are his things that are lost. And it says that, that he rejoices. It says the angels rejoice and God rejoices. And, and that's quite a picture, isn't it? You ever picture God rejoicing? What does it look like when God rejoices? Does he stand up off of his throne <laughs> and rejoice? Does he high five the angels? You know, I mean, what? Does, because God rejoices. So, what is that picture? Because 
a lot of times, you know, that's a hard picture for us. It can be a hard picture for me. It's like, you know, what's God rejoicing? We think of God on his throne, holy angels, holy, 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 and, you know, and I just don't, you know, I just have a hard time, you know, what, what does rejoicing look like? But he absolutely does. He absolutely does. He rejoices over you. It says in Isaiah chapter 62, it says, and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you, over you. Can you imagine that? I want you to know as a pastor, one of the great privileges that I have is doing the wedding ceremony. And as a pastor, you stand up with the groom. And it's a unique perspective to be standing right behind the groom who's standing next to you now. And, and suddenly the music starts, the wedding march, everybody rises and turns to look at the bride. And the bride who will come and she'll turn down that aisle and he will see her for the first time arrayed in her wedding wife. And then their eyes will meet and they will look at each other for that split second that says, hi. And she begins her walk down. And there is a joy in a groom's heart that is beyond words when he sees that bride coming down that altar to him. He rejoices over her. And do you know what? That's God towards you. That is the way that God looks upon you with that tenderness, with that emotion, with that love, with that, with that rejoicing. It says this, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That's how God feels about you. In Zephaniah chapter 3, it says, The Lord your God, in your midst, the mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Do you know, he looks upon you with gladness. And I think that so oftentimes we see our mistakes and we're like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. And I'm just, you know, and, and you think God's just like frowning at you. Come on, can't you do better than this? You know, and, there, and that's that condemnation that comes from the enemy. That's the voice of the enemy. But this is the voice of God. This is the heart of God. This is God telling you how he feels. Not the enemy lying to you. And it says that, that he will rejoice over you with gladness. With gladness. It says, and he will quiet you with his love. He'll quiet the stirrings of your heart with love. And then it says, he will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice over you with singing. Can you picture God singing over you? That's how much he loves you. It's easy for a parent to think of singing over their child lullabies and, and when they're little and they can't tell you that you don't sing good you sing to them there and, and how beautiful that that is you sing you rejoice over your child why because it's yours because it's yours and you see you're god's he created you he loves you he rejoices over he sings over you and so we see Jesus telling us, this is how much God loves you. This is what God's love looks like. Not this angry God and sitting there that wants nothing to do with unrighteous people that's just looking to, to judge us. Huh. 
He's a loving, compassionate, gentle, loving God that's seeking to restore now what's been lost. He says, likewise, I say there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then we have the third and final parable here in this 15th chapter, and it's the parable of the lost son. It's known more frequently as the prodigal son, probably the most well-known of all of the parables that are in the scriptures, and certainly it is beloved, and it is the longest of all of the parables and gives us the greatest amount of detail that is in it. And it begins, and then he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods, or goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. And so the, the son comes and he says, I want my inheritance and I want it now. I, I don't want to wait until you're dead. And that is a rude request of the son. He is being selfish and rude. And that is bad form that he is using here. He's the younger son, which means that he's lived in the shadow of an older brother. That older brother also, when it comes to an inheritance, is going to get double portion, which means that the younger son gets a third and the older son is going to get two-thirds of the estate. And so he says, I want my one-third and I want it now. And so the dad gives him the portion of his livelihood and in verse 13, it says, And not many days after the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. As soon as the dad had given him the, the value of his inheritance, he wanted nothing to do with staying there. He wanted nothing to do with the father. He wanted nothing to do with relationships with his you know, older brother and of his family. And he got as far away as he possibly could from them. In fact, he left the country, went to a far away country. And there he took his money and he started to live it up. The word prodigal means wasteful. Wasteful living. The wasteful living son. And so he was throwing parties and having celebrations, having the, the time of his life. Until suddenly now all of his resources ran out. And it says in verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. There was an economic downturn at the exact same time that he ran out of his money. And so he had to get a job, but jobs were hard to find because they weren't in an economic expansion, and there wasn't a boom that was taking place. The only job that he could find was was to go and to be employed uh, as a hired hand there upon a, uh, a farmer, the landowner. It says, verse 15, Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Pigs are an unclean animal in the eyes of the Jews, and for a Jew to be taking care of pigs is about as low of a job as you can possibly have. And so he is in want. He is taking whatever job he possibly can, but it's not enough to even pay the bills. It's not enough to even feed himself well. 
And it says in verse 16, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. He is pouring slop uh, into the troughs uh, uh, for the, the pigs, and, and all of a sudden he's looking at that and going, you know, that, that doesn't look that bad. <laughs> and the pig's food becomes appealing to him. Hunger is a funny thing like that. Desperation has a way of making us less picky than we would normally be. And he has brought him to a place now where, where he recognizes that there is no ability to sustain himself. And he looks around for help. And there's no one with him. No one will give him anything. After all the parties that he threw, after all the festivities and all the people that came and partake, none of them now will give him anything. And he begins to realize that nobody loves him. That he left everybody that truly did love him. That he left his family and he left his father. And here he is now, all alone, in dire straits. And he begins to remember that his servants back home, the servants of his father, they ate better than, uh, than he's eating now. And it would be a promotion to go and to become a servant in his father's house than it is to starve here as a pig keeper in a foreign country where no one cares about me. And it says that he came to himself. He woke up from the deception of the enemy, from the lies uh, that separated him from family, from love, into isolation. It says in verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I will go back to my dad and just ask him to hire me as a servant. I was wrong. I've sinned against God. How did he sin against God? God tells us to honor our mother and our father. But he dishonored his father. And now he has sinned before God. And he has sinned against his dad. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. You see, the son came, and, and he wasn't feeling worthy now, worthy of his father's love. But here's where the son made the mistake. 
You see, love is not something that is conditional. It's not performance and driven. True love, God's love, is given freely. It is not deserved. If you are trying to deserve somebody's love, if you're trying to earn somebody's love, then that love is actually a wage. <laughs> and it is not love at all. And so God loves us. Why? Because we're his. That's why he loves us. And, and one of the thoughts that I, that I just continually try and wrap my hands around is, is simply this. If you were never to sin again from now till the last breath that you take, if I never committed another sin in my entire life, in other words, I walked perfectly. God, are you watching? I'm doing really good. I'm not angry with anybody. I'm not mad. I'm not yelling. Look at how good I'm doing. And if I was to walk perfectly from now to the day that I die, ready? God wouldn't love you any more than he loves you right this minute. You see, he loves you fully. There is no more capacity for him to love you any more than he already does. And, and how many people think that, uh, that God is mad at them and their life is a mess and they're sinning and that if they can just get their life cleaned up, then they can come to church? If they can just get themselves presentable to God, then they can come and make an approach to God. God says, I love you. You're a mess, <laughs> and I love you anyways. <laughs> and God loves you today, exactly where you are. Imperfect, yes. Unrighteous, yes. The Bible says there's none righteous. What? No, not one, none of us. You see, none of us is deserving of God's love, and we will never be deserving of God's love. We will never earn his love. It's already been freely given, and that's grace. That's the grace of God. That's the love of God. And so here we see that the son feels that the father isn't going to love him, that he's not worthy of his father's love. But a father doesn't love a son because of what the son does or doesn't do. When a father or mother holds their child for the very first time, <laughs> they love them just because they're theirs. That's it. They haven't actually done anything yet. <laughs> and they won't for a really long time. <laughs> but we love them anyways. Because they're ours. And that's why God loves you. Because he created you. He thought you up. And gave you your hair, your eyes, your personality. He gave you your sense of humor and, and every attribute and character and put it together. And he made you. And he loves you. And he loves watching you discover the world and, and all of the, the beauty that is around. And, and to become aware of him and to come into relationship with him. He just loves watching over you and to see how you're doing. I mean, he delights in that. He, he put you together and now he set you down, breathed into you, and now he's watching you grow and live. And you're the apple of his eye. He loves you so much he can't take his eyes off of you. That's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. 
And Jesus is trying to tell us the heart. You, you, you do not understand the Father's heart. You do not understand. You're misrepresenting him all over the place. And so, there's a great celebration. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. Now, his older son, the older son, he's representative of the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. See, to the person that's been trying to earn God's love, they're upset with the grace of God because they're not approaching God by grace. They're approaching God by works, and they've been working really, really hard, and they think that everybody else should be working really, really hard also, and they're mad at anybody that isn't working as hard as they are. And so the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. <laughs> but he was angry and would not go in. And therefore his father came out and pleaded with them. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you, and I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this, 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 this son of yours he came, notice that's his brother. He won't call him his brother. <sighs> So does this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. He's upset. You think? And the father answers and he said to him, son, 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 you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. He says, son, you've always had me with you. You see, that has been your blessing. You see, fellowship with God, intimacy with God is its own reward right there. In fact, in his presence is the fullness uh, of joy. He says, he's been living apart from that fellowship, apart from that love. You, you've enjoyed it this whole time and everything that I have is yours. But now that he has returned and reconnected once again, that is reason to celebrate. But you see, to the person that's trying to earn God's favor, they're not happy about the grace of God nor do they understand the grace of God. And so the Father teaching about his gracious love. As we close our study here, I want to draw our attention really back to just rejoicing. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. We see it in all of the parables. Make merry, rejoice with me. Uh, I found my sheep. I found the coin. I found my son. Uh, in all of it, we see that there is a, a great joy of the Father's heart when there is a reconnection. And certainly... 
On the surface of these parables, it is easy to understand them in a salvation experience, that, uh, that the sheep that was lost is now found, is connected, that the coin that was lost is now uh, replenished, that the son that was dead is now alive. And so certainly we see the joy of God over that sinner that comes to repentance and enters into a connection with them. And it's easy as believers to read these three, to look at them in that context that it's talking about loss and then just move right along. But I think that for us as believers, and if you're a non-believer, then yes, definitely I want you to consider that perspective. But if you're a believer today, I want you to see with me for just a moment these three in a different aspect. God's desire is intimacy with us. And no matter what level of intimacy you're at right now, God wants you to come even closer until you will ultimately one day listen to the intimacy with God that you will one day experience. It says that we see through a glass dimly now, but then face to face. And then we will know him as we are known by him. I want you to consider that for a minute. How well does God know you? He knows the very hairs on your head has the serial number. And we're going to know God as we are known by God. So God is going to give us this capacity to know him and to understand him in a way that, uh, that we don't have right now. And another level of intimacy beyond anything that we can imagine uh, right now. But he is continuing to draw us into intimacy. And no matter how close we are with him today, he wants us to be further. If we're distanced and separated, if we're estranged from him, he, he wants to reconnect with you. If we're doing well and growing, he wants you to take another step and, uh, and further. And so when we look at these three parables in the light of the Father trying to draw us closer to him from no relationship all the way to complete intimacy and anywhere along that spectrum, then we see that these three parables now are, are representative of different ways that keep us maybe distanced from God a little bit. In the first one, we see it was the, uh, the shepherd. And we see that it was the, uh, the sheep. And the sheep was lost um, due to its foolishness. It wandered uh, off. It had line of sight with the shepherd, and then it moved uh, out of that line of sight, and then suddenly it was lost. And sheep have the worst navigational system of any animal that I know. In contrast to cats... Cats have the most amazing sense of direction uh, that there is. Point in, uh, of example. When I was growing up, we had a cat that was <laughs> constantly, it was a great hunter, and it would leave presents on the doorstep every single morning for my mother, a bird, a mouse, you know, all different things. And my mom was done. She wanted my dad to take the cat to work, and my dad had a warehouse, and so and have the cat to be a warehouse cat. Well, the warehouse was about 20 miles away. <laughs> it was about a 35-minute drive. So my dad put the cat in the trunk, closed the trunk, uh, and drove the cat to the warehouse. Two weeks later, hello, I'm back. <laughs> Again, the cat showed back up uh, on our steps uh, there uh, in the house. They have an unbelievable uh, navigational device uh, uh, that is in their head. But sheep... <laughs> Uh huh. <laughs> well, I'm lost. You know, they go over the, and they're lost. They are. They go around the corner. They're lost. If they lose line of sight with the shepherd, they're lost. I mean, that's just the way sheep are. 
And the Bible says we like sheep. We're like sheep. We, we go astray so easily. You know, we're, we're on track with the Lord. We're reading the Bible. We're going to church. We're praying. We're worshiping. It's all good. And then suddenly there's a new relationship in our life, you know, and we start wandering off. You know, there's a new hobby that we have, you know, and we wander off. And my new job, my new this, my new job. And suddenly, uh, what, where, where's the Lord? And we're lost. We're just so easily getting distracted. We just wander off. And so the... The first one talks about how easily distracted we are. In the second one, we see that the coin was something that she valued, but then she was careless with it. She didn't quite treasure it enough to keep it safe, and so it got away from her. And you see, what's the most valuable thing that we have in our life is our relationship with God. And we have that, but then sometimes, you know what? We don't take as good a care of that relationship uh, as we should, we kind of set it aside and we just start doing other things and, uh, and suddenly now we, we've drifted away. That, that which is precious needs to be taken good care of. And, and so we see that there can be a carelessness of losing that priority. Remember God said that we're to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's, that's the first commandment. And the last one, we see rebelliousness. We see that here was the son who, though he was blessed, living in the, in the, in the incredible connection with the father, uh, in full provision, uh, in love, he felt that love from the father as restrictive now, uh, and that it's too narrow, and I, I need to branch out, I need to, to break out, I need freedom, and I need to go be able to do what I want to do, and and the very love that was so nurturing and wonderful and protective and such a blessing, suddenly now he discarded that to go and to and chase after sin. The Bible says that, that sin is fun for a season, but in the end it will leave you isolated and destitute. And that's exactly what, what he found out. That the very love that he thought was so restrictive was what he ended up longing for all along. And so that sin that the enemy tempts you with to discard what's valuable, to reach for what will turn to gravel in your mouth. And that rebelliousness from God to think that God's way is not the best way, but that it's too narrow and too restrictive. That will draw, lead you away, draw you away from the Lord. And so we see three different tactics of the enemy. We see foolishness, carelessness, and rebelliousness. All of them will cause us to distance ourselves. But what Jesus wanted you to know and what God wants you to know is regardless of what the distance is between you and God, he is passionately pursuing you today with everything that he has, that he loves you, and if you will take a step towards him, he will embrace you, throw you on his shoulders, and start rejoicing, and God will sing uh, over you. God loves you, because he made you, and he wants that intimate, and abiding, eternal relationship with you, and he is willing to come get you at all costs. In fact, he did at all costs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. 
And Lord, we just ask that you would just help us to be overwhelmed with your love. Overwhelmed with your love for us today. And may we love you in return. You initiated that love and we're just responding to that love. And God, may we love others. May we take good care of one another today. May we take that love <coughs> and pass it on <coughs> to those that are around us. And it's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.